0: Like Nana said at the beginning, if you're new with us, you haven't been with us um, the past few weeks, I wanna kind of just catch you up, just fill you in on where we're at as a church family, Uh, just kind of this journey that we find ourselves in. Uh, So we're in this uh, season, just kind of this special season of prayer and fasting together as a church family. Uh, What we've done is we've set aside 30 days to intentionally uh, seek God together. Uh, And our prayer has been a simple prayer. It's been the title of this teaching series. Our prayer has just been, God, hey, will you awaken us? Will you awaken us? Will you awaken our hearts? Will you awaken our lives to the reality that you are real, that you are alive, that you are working in us and you are working around us right now in our midst? And I know for a lot of you, you're probably in a lot of different places on that journey And that's okay, wherever you find yourself. Um, But I've just been encouraged hearing from different different folks, just the ways in which God has just been awakening uh, you. Some have been big moments, some have been small moments, but I've just been encouraged by hearing uh, all the ways in which God has been awakening your heart. And a part of this journey has just been us in the book of Nehemiah together. Uh, Us and the story of Nehemiah together uh, looking at this moment of awakening for him. You know, we've been looking at this person, Nehemiah, whose heart was just broken in this moment, whose heart was broken, whose heart was stirred, whose heart was awoken by God. And we're going to continue uh, that journey this morning of looking at Nehemiah and what happens to a heart that is awoken by God. There's this quote I heard one time. You may have heard it before, but the quote I kind of came across this, this week, it was, we never know how far-reaching something we think, say, or do today will affect the lives of millions tomorrow. I'll say it again. We never know how far-reaching something we think, say, or do today will affect the lives of millions tomorrow. And I believe there's no place that this is more true than the kingdom of God. I've thought about this quote, just kind of in the midst of the season that we find ourselves in as a church family, in the midst of all the prayers that we're praying as a church family for God to awaken us. And I've been thinking about all these small moments of awakening that have been happening across our church family. And the fact that we have no idea how far reaching these moments are gonna go. It's impossible. One of the things I've been realizing this week, it is impossible to to measure, to know how far the ripple effects of God's awakening is gonna go in your life and the life of others, no matter how big or small you think that moment might be. I wanna ask if you ever heard the story of a man named Edward Kimball. Raise your hand if you've ever heard it. Probably not many of you have. there aren't many people who could tell you the uh, historical significance of Edward Kimball. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page, so that just goes to show you how famous he isn't because that's kind of how you measure how famous someone is these days is if they have a Wikipedia page. Um, I don't, for the record. Uh, But in the 1850s, Kimball, a local businessman, was also um, this Sunday school teacher at this small church. Uh, in Detroit, Michigan, shout out Detroit, um, God began uh, just awakening Kimball's heart to the reality of the gospel. So Edward Kimball, he, he taught the Sunday school class of uh, this group of boys. And some of these young men were much more open to the gospel uh, than others. In fact, there was this one in particular, a rebellious uh, young man who uh, he just had a lot of trouble with, did not wanna have anything to do with God or religion or anything along those lines. So one day, this young man, he stopped showing up, stopped showing up to church, stopped showing up to Sunday school. And Edward Kimball, whose heart had just been awoken by the reality of the gospel, says, okay, I'm actually gonna have to go after him Like, I'm gonna actually keep reaching out. And so he started using his lunch break, uh, figuring out, hey, where does he work? Where does this young man work? And so Kimball would use his lunch break and he would go to the shoe shop in which this young, rebellious teenager worked. And he would, over time, form a relationship with this young man. Form the relationship, eventually bringing this man to Christ. This young man by the name of D.L. Moody eventually became one of the greatest evangelists uh, ever to live. He evangelized to uh, 100 million people, they think, across two continents. Uh, But what I love is that the story doesn't end there. The story of Edward Kimball uh, really is just beginning. Through his ministry, D.L. Moody became responsible for a London pastor named F.B. Meyer coming to faith. And Meyer The story continues, he helped bring a man named Wilbur Chapman to faith. And Wilbur Chapman, he went on to evangelize and teach a man by the name of Billy Sunday. What a great name, Billy Sunday. Uh, Billy Sunday, he went on to teach and preach and evangelize and eventually became uh, discipled a man by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham, another great name. Mordecai Ham went on to become another great evangelist in the 20th century. And so here we are from Edward Kimball all the way up to Mordecai Ham, Charlotte, North Carolina. He's come, he's bringing these uh, gospel meetings to Charlotte, North Carolina. And there's this group of teenage boys who are getting ready to just like cause and stir up trouble. They're gonna go to these gospel meetings and they're gonna stir up trouble. They're gonna interrupt Mordecai Ham's um, gospel meetings that he's holding. A guy by the name of Billy Frank says, okay, you know, I'm gonna go and at least see, see what happens here. Well, Billy Frank, he goes that first night to see this stir, to see this ruckus, and he's actually a little bit intrigued uh, by what he heard from from him. So he comes back the second night, and Billy Frank eventually accepts the invitation that second night and becomes a follower of Jesus. Well, Billy Frank eventually becomes known as Billy Graham, and Billy Graham ends up preaching the gospel to 2.2 billion people. And I think all the way back to one simple moment of awakening in Detroit, Michigan. You follow that story all the way to a man named Billy Graham who preached the gospel to more people than anyone else who has ever lived. And I've just been thinking this week, do you think that Edward Kimball, do you think he had any idea the way that God would use this small moment of awakening in his life? A small moment of awakening to the reality of the gospel a small moment of awakening that made him reach out to this rebellious teenager in Detroit, Michigan in 1854. Do you think he knew how these small moments of awakening would eventually affect the people 100 years, 200 years down the road? And I come back to that quote. We never know how far reaching something we may think, say, or do today will affect the lives of millions tomorrow. What, what would happen, I've just been thinking about this this week, okay, what would happen if each of us, each of us in this room, each of us in our church were faithful to the things that God was awakening in us? What would happen 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now if each one of us were faithful to these small moments of awakening in our life? It's just how the kingdom of God works. It's how the story begins in Nehemiah and how the story is gonna continue to end. This is just true. It's true in your life, it's true in my life. The things that we say, do, think today has the possibility of affecting millions tomorrow. So when you think back to Nehemiah, you think back to Nehemiah, which is where we're gonna continue being today, how this story starts, how this story begins, if you weren't with us back in Nehemiah chapter one, he has this just kind of simple and small moment of his heart being broken. His heart being broken over the condition of the people, the condition of the city that he comes from, and the condition of their land. And what we saw last week was God beginning to use Nehemiah really in more ways than Nehemiah imagined than from that first moment of small awakening in his life. So God, he continued to just fan the flame. He just continued to fan the flame. He continued to throw more logs on the fire. He continued to kindle that flame of awakening in Nehemiah's life. Brandon talked about that last week. And Nehemiah, through the power of prayer, he fights through all of this fear. Because that's what happens. You have these moments of awakening and then fear hits you. And then Nehemiah, through the power of prayer, fights through the fear. And he finds himself in front of the king. And he asks the king, hey, can I go back to Jerusalem. Can I rebuild the walls? And by the power of God, the king says, yes, yes, you can. So let's jump back into the story. That's kind of where we ended last week. Uh, We begin in Nehemiah chapter two, verses 11 and 13 this morning. Um, We're not gonna be able to read these three chapters. Like, so we're gonna kind of be jumping through from now all the way to chapter four. And so the verses are actually gonna be up on the screen, starting with this first one. Uh, so if you wanna read along, you can read along uh, on the screens or in your own Bibles if you prefer that. So let's read, uh, jump back into the story, Nehemiah 2, 11 through 13. It says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out to the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah, he's arrived at the ruins. King's given him permission. He's arrived at the ruins, and he finds it's, just, it's a mess. It's, it's a bunch of rubble. He's taken this 1,000-mile journey. It probably took him about 25 days to get there uh, at this moment in time. And after 25 days, there's this little moment. He rests for three days, and then he goes out and he starts inspecting the walls, inspecting the gates, inspecting the city. And what he sees is, for the very first time, the thing that God had laid on his heart with his own eyes. And it's way worse than he ever probably thought it would be. He's seeing the rubble. He's seeing the wreckage. He's seeing how much work actually lies ahead of this thing that God has awoken in his heart. But it doesn't end there. Nehemiah 2, starting verse 16. So it says, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. So at this moment, he's just kind of kept it to himself. Uh, the, the vision, the awakening uh, that God had put on his heart, you know, it's, it's here. He hasn't yet shared it with anybody else. Um, No one knew what I was doing because as yet I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any other who would be doing the work. Next verse. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. He begins to share. He begins to like share the vision which God has put in his heart. Jerusalem, it lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, come. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Verse 18. I also told them I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, "Let us start rebuilding." And so they began this good work. Progress is starting to happen. They're actually starting to lay the foundation and rebuild the gates. Nehemiah, after taking some time to inspect the walls, he's he's put this plan in place and he just begins to gather his community. And he begins to just share this vision in which God has put on his heart. And I love this. And I think we need to hear this because it's encouraging, at least to me. And how good of a reminder is it that we were not made to do this alone? Like none of us were made to journey alone. None of us were made to carry the things on our hearts alone. So often God will call you to invite others into the thing that he's awakening in you. We cannot do this alone. Like you can't do this alone. You can't do this journey of prayer and fasting alone. You can't do this walk with God alone. We need each other and Nehemiah reminds us. So he brings us to his community and they begin to get to work. So here they are. They're in the middle of rebuilding the wall. And next, and really where we're gonna be today, next you begin to see what happens when you step into the reality of the thing that God has placed on your heart. You're gonna begin to see the reality of, of what that means. And so let's continue the journey. Nehemiah chapter two, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Aram heard it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I can't tell you how often, just all my cards out on the table, how often I believe the lie that things are just going to be easy. Both in the natural world and in the spiritual, spiritual world in my walk with Christ, just, hey, things are supposed to, to be easy. And here's something that I was just realizing in just my time in the Word and my time with God this week and time of just preparation is that whenever God presents us an opportunity, the enemy is so quick to bring about opposition. Whenever God presents us an opportunity, the enemy is so quick to bring about opposition. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. Have you ever noticed that during your times of greatest spiritual breakthrough, during your times of greatest spiritual revival are actually the times where you face opposition the most, either during or right after. You see, God, he has presented Nehemiah with this opportunity. And it does not take long for the opposition to start rearing its head the people and the enemies surrounding Nehemiah in this land, they have a vested interest in making sure, making sure the walls stay broken down, making sure the walls stay in rubble. And believe me, the enemy has a vested interest in making sure the walls of your life stay broken down and stay in pieces and stay in rubble because the enemy knows The enemy knows what is possible with one small moment of awakening. The enemy knows what is possible with one small opportunity from God. And so Nehemiah, he begins to face all of this opposition. And we're gonna kind of look at three different um, oppositions this morning. Three different oppositions Nehemiah faced and three kinds of opposition 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 that we face. Say that five times real fast. The first opposition we actually see in chapter 19. And I think it's social, social opposition. Verse 19, have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that when you start taking steps towards God, when you start taking steps in your walk with God, you immediately kind of start feeling the pull and the pressure of, of culture around you. Many of you probably have felt it during this season of prayer and fasting where you're taking steps, you're pursuing the Lord and so quickly you begin to cave to the, to the cultural norms, to the social pressures of what, what's expected to you, expected of you by the world around you. In Nehemiah, he begins to feel the social pressure they're saying to him, hey, I, I, are you sure you want to rebel against the king? Like, are you sure that's something you want to do? And always, always at the heels of opportunity is opposition. And the second type of opposition I think we see is the psychological opposition. Psycholo- Man, goodness, psychological opposition. I shouldn't have written this sermon with so many complicated words. Nehemiah chapter four, uh, two through three. Let's look at the psychological opposition he begins to face. Nehemiah 4, we're jumping ahead here, two and three. I'll let y'all who are following along in your Bibles catch up. So in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, this is is the enemy talking. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? He's being sarcastic. Will they finish in a day? Will they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Verse three. There we go. Tobiah the Ammonite, who's at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. First of all, like, what a lame Old Testament burn this is from Tobiah. I just was reading that this week. I'm like, Tobiah, really? Are you really going to say that? Like, that is about the lamest burn that I've ever heard. But um, this psychological opposition, what, 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 is it, what do they start doing? Start poking at their identity. They start poking and prodding at their identity of the people of God. They say, y'all are kind of feeble, like, I don't know if you can do this. And if you ever started to hear those voices inside of your head where you started, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough. Like I don't know if I'm spiritual enough. I, I don't know if I'm strong enough to do this for God. I don't know if I'm gifted enough. And you start hearing those voices inside your head over and over and over trying to keep you from the thing that God is awakening in you because you have to remember the enemy knows what's at stake in those small moments of awakening from God. So let's look at the third kind of opposition here, physical opposition, uh, Nehemiah chapter four, seven through eight, and then verse 11. Also, our enemies. So there should be one right before that, I'm sorry. For, nope, it's not there. I'll read it out loud. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. Okay, so they're, they're getting a little mad here that the, the, Jerus, uh, the Israelites, they're, they're starting to make some progress. So it's getting serious. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against us. Also our enemy said, they said before they know it, or they see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and we will put an end to their work. So we've seen the social opposition, the psychological opposition, and now we're getting ready to face this this physical opposition. They're stepping into this opportunity from God, but they find themselves facing all of this opposition, including now a physical threat. They're still making progress. They're still making progress, and so uh, the enemy starts to really, really come after them. Begins to threaten them physically with their lives. And I know we face all sorts of different physical opposition, in our pursuit with God, but I I know for a fact that there are people all around the world who are afraid of their lives because of an opportunity that God has placed before them. It's a real reality in a lot of parts of this world. And often when there is opposition, we seem to think it's a sign that, that we're doing something wrong. And although this can be true in some areas of our life, This is not often true in the kingdom of God. What does Jesus, what does he tell us in John chapter 16, verse 33? Jesus, he says, in this world, he says, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't stop there. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We can't forget Either parts of what Jesus has to say here. He says, Hey, you will have trouble. Like, guarantee, you will have trouble. You will face opposition. But also don't forget, I've overcome. I've won the battle. Take heart. Do not fear. So, Nehemiah, he has been awakened by God, he has pushed through fear, by the power of prayer. He has stepped into this opportunity from God and the opposition begins. The opposition begins, but what does Nehemiah do? And that's where I I wanna kind of end this morning. What does Nehemiah do? How does he react? How does he come against this opposition that he's facing? Nehemiah chapter four, verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up And said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, are the Israelites, he says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is that movie moment. Like this is that movie moment when they're facing opposition and he's like, all right, hey. I've got to give this speech to inspire. I got to help the people remember why it is that we're here. This is that brave heart moment. And he says, remember the Lord. Remember your God. Remember who our God is. It does not matter how strong they might seem. It doesn't matter how impossible it might seem. Our God is great. Our God is awesome. He reminds them it's okay to fight. And I love this. I needed this this week. Sometimes I forget that it's okay to fight for the things that really matter. And in fact, I think when it comes to the things that really matter, I think we actually have to fight for them the things that matter most often will require a little bit of fighting. I had a mentor uh, growing up, and um, he began kind of sharing with me his journey and his story, and he began just kind of talking to me about a particular season in his past with his, with his marriage. And he just began sharing with me just these really, really hard moments in his, in his marriage he began sharing with me all of these different ways that he began to fight, fight for his bride. And I'll never forget him saying, Andrew, there are things in life that are worth fighting for. There are things in life that are worth fighting for. And he said, this was worth fighting for. And sometimes the spirit-filled life, the life of following Jesus can feel like a battle. It can feel like a fight. But I I love what we see from Nehemiah. I love what we see in the way that they fight. It's not with their fists. In fact, we see they prayed and then they planned. This is the kind of two things they did. They prayed and they planned. They began every moment of fighting in prayer. Go back, read the entire chapter four. You will see Nehemiah, every single time he's facing opposition, the first place that he turns is to prayer with God. So they got on their knees, but they also got to their feet and they put a plan in place to defeat the enemy. And as they prayed and as they planned, they never forgot who it is that was doing the heavy lifting. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 20 says, Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Hey, whenever you hear the trumpet sound, like gather, and what I would think they would say is, Hey, we're gonna give it our all. Like, we're gonna really go for it. We're gonna give them hell. No. He says, hey, come, gather, we're gonna fight. No, our God will fight for us. And I was reminded this week, like my God will fight for me. Your God will fight for you. God is the one that does the real work. He's the one that does the heavy lifting and we have to to remember this. You think about this in the story of Nehemiah. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to accomplish in 52 days what had lied in ruins for 140 years. 52 days what had lied in ruins for 140 years. And what started in Nehemiah didn't just end there. He's helping to rebuild the place that Jesus, the Messiah, is one day gonna ride into. He helped rebuild the place that one day Jesus is gonna come back to. Do you think Nehemiah had any idea of how far-reaching his impact was gonna be? And that's what this season is about. God breathing life into all the small moments of awakening in our church family. I wonder how many Edward Kimballs are being raised up right now that are gonna impact your neighborhood, gonna impact your city, gonna impact beyond. And maybe God's awakening you this season. Maybe he's presenting you with an opportunity. Maybe God's presenting you with an opportunity to just pray with your spouse to pray with your family, to get into the word together for possibly the first time. Maybe God is presenting you with an opportunity, awakening you with an opportunity to let go of that addiction that's held on and grasped on and you can't ever seem to shake. And maybe this is the opportunity that God has given you to finally let go of that addiction that's been holding on for so long. Maybe God's been awakening you, been awakening your heart to the people around you. Maybe you're beginning to see the people you work with, the people you live next to in a different way than before. And maybe he's presenting you with an opportunity to be a light in those places. No matter how big or small you feel this opportunity to be, the thing that he is awakening in you, I just want you to remember the story of Edward Kemble, and remember that it is worth fighting for. And as we fight, we must remember and always come back to the fact that Jesus has already won. The battle's been fought, victory is ours. That's the difference between Nehemiah and us, we know. We know with certainty the battle has been won. So in these small moments of awakening, these small opportunities that God may be presenting you in this season for Jesus to come and touch down in your life, in your marriage, in this city, remember it's worth fighting for and we have a God who's willing to fight for us.